Morena, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out via the Kaka, and it's for paying subscribers. Uh, it's all about the political economy in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I focus on housing affordability, climate change, and poverty reduction. Today, I wanted to look at a story that has come out of stuff via Federico Magrin uh, about the cost for the government of emergency housing. This, of course, is all of those motels and uh, campgrounds and various other uh, means of paying for people who are unable to find a place to live. So, of course, there's huge issues with the shortage of homes, uh, more than 25,000 families on the waiting list registered as uh, homeless or in need of a home, and that means they have to live in a motel or something like that. And the cost to the government, according to this report, over the last five years is now up to a total of $1.5 billion over those uh, five years or so. That is on top of uh, regular payments by the government in the form of accommodation supplements and rent subsidies, first-home buyer subsidies as well as um, various measures to try and improve housing supply. So we clearly have um, housing crises. Too much demand for housing, uh, simply uh, too many people, but also uh, enormous amounts of demand for housing as an investment class rather than a, a service from an asset. And, of course, we don't have enough supply of housing. So uh, we clearly need um, several hundred thousand more homes if we were going to reduce the cost of housing, reducing the price of housing and of course the cost of renting, both of which are now the highest in the world relative to incomes. For example, we have the most stressed poor renters in the world uh, when you measure the proportion of those people who are paying more than 40% of their disposable income in rent. And it is holding back the entire economy and society and imposing costs in all sorts of other places. So, for example, uh, the number of people in South Auckland who bounce from private rental to private rental uh, is so high now that almost half of the kids in South Auckland schools have been through more than one school in their first two or three years of learning. So transience is a major issue. That's obviously going to reduce the, um, the learning uh, uh, of those kids and make it difficult for them. Not only of that, of course, but if they're living in cold, mouldy homes, they're more than likely to have to go to a hospital during the winter. So high housing costs costs us, and when I say us, I mean taxpayers and businesses, enormous amounts uh, every year. And when you mount up the identifiable costs for the taxpayer, it is substantial. So when you include uh, those emergency housing costs, the various other subsidies, you're looking at $7.1 billion per year. Now this opens up uh, an opportunity actually to, to reframe the debate around housing and taxation and using government to solve these problems. So one of the arguments in the past against uh, the government 
intervening or spending or changing taxes to uh, solve these housing supply and demand crises is that it would be too expensive for the taxpayer, that taxes would have to go up, mortgage rates would be higher than they otherwise would be, rates for councils would go up and government and council debts would go up and this would be not only risky but more expensive for most people in the long run. However, if you are able to reduce the cost to taxpayers of $7.1 billion per year, that actually reframes the debate to say, actually, if you solve the problem, you save yourself $7.1 billion a year, which you could use to give yourself a tax cut, for example. And I think it's worth um, teasing out uh, through the Kaka Project lens how you could use, for example, that $7.1 billion as a bit like a fund to help pay for uh, the changes that are required um, to uh, effectively come up with a new deal which um, changes all the incentives in our economy and in our political economy as well. So, for example, um, if you were to say to uh, politicians, voters of all the major parties and all the sides, and say that this $7.1 billion could be taken out of government spending, reduced, and used to pay for various forms of tax cuts, uh, you could, in theory, get a broader uh, coalition behind the plan. Now, this sounds um, completely implausible for those who've been watching politics quite recently and see what appear to be uh, um, uh, huge gaps between the big parties and and in the rhetoric of all the parties. However, um, we have been through periods of uh, political division and uh, clashes and tension and crisis before. And we've come up with effectively... A, a new social contract in which there is a, a new deal, a type of agreement between both major party groups that lasts for decades and changes the underlying signals in our economy and our society. Now, the example of this is what happened between 1984 and 1993. That's when the uh, fourth Labour government was elected from 1984 to 1990, and then the first uh, a term of the Bolger-Richardson government from 1990 to 1993. During that time, both Labour and Nas National essentially agreed to reform the economy uh, to various extents, but in the same direction, which was to deregulate the economy uh, for businesses, to make it much harder to do so-called think-big projects, uh, particularly by um, making it difficult to get consent for these projects, and to restructure the way government finances are reported and run, so it was very difficult to increase debts. Their main aim was to avoid a Robert Muldoon ever happening again, and that's because we don't have an upper house of parliament or a written constitution in the same form that you see in the likes of the United States or Australia which prevents um, a single individual from essentially running government and exploding government debt and taking all sorts of actions that lots of people oppose for years on end. 
And the solution to this problem, the bipartisan solution, was the creation of a set of four foundational acts of parliament, which um, changed the way we run. Starting with the State Sector Act of 1988, running through the Reserve Bank Act of 1989, the Resource Management Act of 1991, which was actually started in 1989, and the Public Finance Act of 1989. These four acts uh, meant that governments uh, from both sides of politics decided that they would not increase uh, government debt to essentially uh, buy their way uh, back into power, that they would not do massive development projects to um, uh, uh, buy their way back into power or to do big things, if you like, and that they would reduce um, the size of government to less than 30% of GDP, and keep debt, government debt, well below 30% of GDP. So those four acts together were essentially a new deal that changed the um, inner workings of New Zealand economy and society, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. They also, in a de facto way, agreed that this was necessary because New Zealand was going to have low population growth in the years to come. They believed in the mid-80s and early 90s. They believed that there would be population growth of 0.5 to 0% per year in the long run because we had an ageing population and at that point we weren't seeing much inward migration. And that assumption those sets of assumptions of low population growth and an ongoing commitment to a relatively small size of government, so 30% of GDP for core crown taxation um, and core crown spending and net debt, depending on which flavour of government you are looking at and the uh, goalposts they used, of no more than 20 to 30% of GDP. Now that meant if you wanted to change things, you couldn't really use debt to do it. You couldn't really increase taxes to do it or government spending. And uh, that limited the amount of development that we could do. And it filtered down in all sorts of ways. It meant that we had essentially had sinking lids on health and education spending over the years in real terms per capita. And it meant that um, councils and the government were incentivized through the way that these acts worked together to say no whenever a development proposal came through. Uh, mainly because the Resource Management Act gave people the power to say no who wanted to say no. And they were saying no because when you say no to a big project, you ensure that you're not going to be taxed for it and you're not going to have extra debt for it. Now, all of this sort of made sense in the late 80s. Um, if you were able to create a more efficient set of taxation systems and government spending, a broad-based low-rate tax system that was hard to uh, evade or ignore, seemed fair and uh, was able to fund the uh, public services that you wanted to keep. So we brought in a relatively simple income tax system, uh, a simple and comprehensive uh, goods and services tax system, and uh, we removed the incentives, the subsidies, if you like, for pension saving. So um, before 1984, you were able to put money into a pension and get a tax break to do it. And this was seen as a tax break for the rich. 
and not fair and not a level playing field. So it was removed. The idea was that the way that you would ensure this was fair was to introduce a capital gains tax. Now that was on the plan for 1989 as well, but it never got through. And uh, David Cagle, not David Cunliffe, David Cagle <laughs> was the Labour Finance Minister at the time who proposed the capital gains tax and couldn't get it through. And so we created uh, this supposedly perfect um, broad-based low-rate tax system with a relatively low size of government, um, with the one big exception of not bringing in a capital gains tax. And a combination of things, uh, falling inflation, falling interest rates, partly because of the Reserve Bank Act, and um, the lack of this uh, uh, tax on capital gains, as well as the growth of our uh, bank lending sector, particularly bank mortgage lending, saw um, immense gains in tax-free equity on the value of residential land, far in excess of any of the gains from savings and other investment classes. So if you put your money into the stock market in 1986 and looked at it today in a real um, uh, terms, it would be a vastly inferior set of returns to just simply having your money in residential land. Um, partly because you can't leverage investments in the stock market um, and partly because just the returns tax-free after tax uh, for residential land versus stocks um, just so much higher in New Zealand and actually sadly in the rest of the world but ours is off the charts. So uh, for example what we left with now is a housing market that's worth 1.6 trillion dollars that's up from uh, uh, less than half a trillion dollars about 20 years ago and uh, when you look at the gains in the value of land, so the land value in our residential land market is $1 trillion, and it's up by at least $500 billion in the last 20 years or so. Now, that is accrued mostly to households, uh, either households who have one home or households who have more than one home. Obviously, the most gains have accrued to those people with the most houses. Now, that is... Um, uh, a very large number, $500 billion. To put it in context, the entire size of our listed stock market is $160 billion. So our, our housing market is worth 10 times the size of our stock market. In other more normal economies, um, that relationship, rather than being 10 to 1, is more like 2 or 3 or even 1 to 1. That's the case in the United States. In Australia, even, it's 3 or 4 to 1. And when you take into account the other savings that we have in KiwiSaver and other pension funds, uh, the relationship is in New Zealand is more like four or five to one uh, in, in terms of total pension savings. And in fact, uh, individual pension savings, it's more like uh, 16 to one, whereas in the United States, that's more like two or three to one and in Australia, three or four to one. So we have built ourselves a housing market with bits tacked on in which we choose overall and in most cases, whenever we generate some savings to put it into residential land, because the risk-adjusted returns are much, much higher, particularly once you can leverage them, because they're tax-free, and because it's one of the assets, in fact, the only asset, really, that you can leverage in any great way. So that's a huge disincentive for people to not just invest in businesses, but also to use the 
uh, arms of government to invest in infrastructure. Because every time you use the government to increase um, spending on infrastructure investment, you increase government debt, and you also potentially have to increase taxes to either pay for the debt or simply to use the taxes to pay for the operational costs of all that extra infrastructure. Now, why is that a problem? Well, <laughs> no one likes um, to pay higher taxes, but there's two issues here. A, if your um, entire uh, model of building up a, a nest egg is to have a very high disposable income, not necessarily so you can save the cash from that, but to go to a bank and say, here's my regular disposable income after taxes, which you can use to justify giving me a big loan to buy more residential land, either to live in or to own as rental property or just to have empty as a holiday home or whatever. That um, that means that uh, what you, you are incentivized to encourage your government to cut taxes because that improves the disposable income you have to use to build up your uh, retirement nest egg, so to speak. And uh, that means that median voters who are mostly homeowners in the suburbs uh, with leveraged tax-free gains, that $500 billion worth, are incentivized to keep capital gains tax-free and also to encourage governments to give them tax cuts so that they can use that disposable income to gear up even more. They believe they have to do that because... Uh, house prices are so high now that they need extra leveraged equity gains to be able to withdraw cash to help their kids with deposits for their own homes. Um, and that is the current situation in our political economy. We are trapped, in a way, uh, hostages to that half a trillion dollars worth of tax-free capital gains that households have. And it's not just rental property owners who have it, it is everyone so one of the main uh, problems with our housing market is that it is uh, so uh, inflated and so highly valued that most families now are completely feel completely dependent on it for their retirements and the financial um, futures of their own entire family. So this is um, the problem. How do you solve the problem in our political economy? Well, um, Essentially, you have to think of deals, ways in which you bring opposites together, uh, situations in which you can solve both of their problems with the same solution. And you may think, oh, that's impossible. But as I said before, uh, we've had uh, divided um, political situations and crises before, and it was solved through a series of bits of legislation that changed the rules in effect. Now, what I want to propose now through the Kaka Project, now for those who are brand new subscribers, the Kaka Project is um, uh, our collective search for solutions to some of our political economy issues. You know, how do we make housing more affordable? How do we ensure we uh, hit our emissions reductions targets? How do we ensure that poverty is reduced? In my view, uh, you go a long way towards reducing our poverty issues and many of their other issues with um, poor productivity growth, uh, high justice costs, um, poor educational outcomes when you simply reduce poverty. When um, kids have parents who aren't financially stressed, who aren't bouncing from one private rental to another, then you tend to have um, uh, kids who are healthier, learn more, uh, earn more, 
pay more taxes and end up on prison less, not to mention end up in hospital less. So in my view, um, which is a, th a housing theory of everything, if we solve affordable housing, we go a long way to not just solving our poverty issues, but also our climate issues. Because if you build the right types of housing in the right places, not only uh, can they be carbon zero, because they're properly insulated and uh, heated with renewable energy, but also people aren't having to jump in a car and drive uh, hours each day burning fossil fuels to get to and from work and school. If you have medium density housing, then you uh, certainly can build closer to people where people work and play and learn. And um, that is something we don't do very well at the moment for all sorts of reasons. In my view, um, essentially the arms of government and councils are incentivized to say no to new development because they've convinced themselves that population growth is going to be low in the long run when it isn't. And secondly, um, all of those incentives I talked about before, about keeping debt low, about keeping taxes low, and prioritising tax-free gains on leveraged residential land, mean there are no incentives to approve uh, new um, housing units on that residential land. Not only does uh, an increase in housing supply reduce your ability to get more rents, but also it means, uh, all other things being equal, that mortgage rates are likely to be higher and so are taxes. So we're in this situation where um, we have the least affordable housing market in the world with the most stressed renters and an entire generation thinking of leaving the country because they can't afford to get into um, the housing market and have futures for their families. So how do we solve this problem? Well, um, the Kaka project is um, my idea uh, for coming up with a set of solutions which hopefully are coherent and which might appeal to um, people across the political spectrum. So um, here's, a, here's a few ideas. Uh, essentially, a new deal could be an Affordable Housing and Climate Act, which does a few things. Firstly, um, agreeing to no more huge, long-term, multi-billion dollar public transport or motorway projects. So no more of these big tunnels through hills that cost billions and billions. Uh, by the way, the most recent tunnels through hills that we built were the most expensive in the world per kilometre of tunnel digging. That's because um, a lot of it was done through COVID, although a lot of other people's projects were done through COVID too. Uh, but because we don't have a history of doing these projects in any sort of planned way, we don't have the companies with the balance sheets or the experience or the machines to do it. So we have to bring, bring in people from overseas and then send them away again. We also don't have a pipeline of developments that businesses trust. So if you're Fletcher Building or Hawkins or someone like that, and you're thinking, what should I invest in over the next 10 to 20 years? Am I going to be sure that this project, uh, these projects are going to happen, that they aren't going to be cancelled at the flick of a switch whenever there's a change of government? And, and therefore, um, those businesses don't invest in training, the big infrastructure, uh, investments. So, for example, if you are going to have lots and lots of pipes for water or roads, uh, or you're going to have to have a, uh, a big plant to um, do prefabricated concrete for all sorts of things, 
you don't invest in that if you're not sure that that pipeline is going to come to fruition. And those preconceptions have all been confirmed again in the last six weeks or so with the cancellation of the City Rail Link, the Let's Get Wellington Moving projects and, and of course, the cancellation of the Inter-Islander project, which is mostly a ferry terminals rebuild project. And um, so you have this these incentives at council, business, central government and median voter level to not approve developments. So an Affordable Housing and Climate Act could do a bunch of things. By agreeing to no more of these big projects, um, you certainly remove the chance that there will be blowouts in costs. And you also uh, remove an awful lot of um, carbon emissions because when you build these tunnels, A, they take decades and therefore you are not reducing your emissions from cars very quickly if your assumption is that, well, once we've got the tunnel built, then we can move people onto the trains or all the um, other ways of doing things. What's actually needed is very fast uh, emissions reduction, a very fast mode shift from um, cars and trucks and SUVs and double cab utes to walking and cycling and um, buses in cities. And one way to do that very quickly and very cheaply is to reconfigure some of the lanes in these multi-lane roads that we have, the four, six, eight lane roads, and take uh, a lane or two off them and use them, reconfigure them quickly as uh, cycleways and busways and also to improve the walk, the walking um, infrastructure around those as well. So you're not drilling huge expensive holes through the middle of uh, hills, you are simply uh, drilling in a bunch of bollards, plastic bollards into uh, roadways and making it easy for people to cycle or walk or take a bus to work. You're also investing in buses rather than investing in huge um, bits of railway kit. and, of course, the right of politics um, who argue that it's bad to have high debt and high government spending now have none of those projects to worry about. Now, I'd also have to agree not to do big motorways instead, and that's an interesting issue as it is. But um, if you wanted to do a deal, that would be one way to get some people interested in talking to you. And what you're essentially saying is, I won't spend billion on these new tunnels and railways over the long run. Instead, we're going to very quickly reconfigure some of these uh, roads into cycleways and busways. Now, those people who are voting against big railways um, and for motorways might say, hey, that's that's my road you're taking for cycling. How do you do that? Well, uh, you could argue that's the deal. Um, You avoid $50 billion of government debt and spending and potential blowouts. Uh, in exchange for um, all these people moving out of cars and and, uh, utes and SUVs and onto cycleways and walkways, particularly in our big cities. And I'm talking here about our fastest growing uh, uh, cities of Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga, Wellington, Christchurch, Queenstown and Dunedin. Secondly, you could offer to remove all consenting and development contribution fees for developments which are certified as zero carbon by 2050, let's say, and we're using government-insured and guaranteed building plans and materials in exchange for the government itself saying, yes, we will fund, through borrowing, the water, 
public transport, so electric buses, housing, health, education, because if you're going to grow your economy, you need schools and hospitals and all of those things. And no no business is going to invest around a, a new town centre or a reconfigured town centre that doesn't have those public services. And also councils uh, will say yes to things <laughs> instead of saying no, because they're not going to be the ones paying for the infrastructure for all of this stuff, the water, the transport, the housing, the health, the education. At the same time, as you agree all these things, you agree to reinstate interest deductibility and building depreciation for rental and commercial property investors. Remember, these were ways that the previous Labour government tried to control the um, or change the investment calculations for rental property investors. It didn't work in the long run because people believed that it would be flipped back on its on its head as soon as the new government got in. Uh, you'd also you also um, would go back to a broad-based, low-rate, simple taxation system, where you say a cost of doing business should be accounted for when you pay tax. And it's true if you're a commercial landlord, the interest is a cost of doing business. And um, if you're going to change the rules for interest deductibility, depending on what type of investor you are, you start to get into some really tricky areas. And I'm actually in favour of removing interest deductibility. Uh, And if you're going to do that, you also need to change the building depreciation rules. Um, Both sides of uh, politics have used um, uh, removing depreciation as a taxable expense in uh, residential rental property as a way to change those investment incentives. And at the same time, uh, commercial property investors have been whacked. And uh, that's what the incoming government plans to do to help pay for its income tax cuts as well. So you'd uh, reinstate interest deductibility and building depreciation uh, for uh, uh, tax purposes. You'd also say to everyone, the deal is we're going to leave in place the tax-free nature of capital gains. Now you'd say, well, I was, why would you do that? Um, why are you going to have an unlevel playing field for all those people who are building businesses, not residential property businesses, but businesses? And uh, that's true. And one of the good things about our tax system is it does encourage people to build businesses, uh, although at the moment um, the encouragement is all in the uh, area of buying more residential land rather than building actual businesses. So um, how do you change the incentives around this uh, tax-free gain on leveraged land? Well, you impose a broad-based and low-rate residential levy, a levy on residential land values for everyone who owns residential land. So that, in my view, should be something like 0.5% per year. And uh, it is a core part of the deal. You're essentially saying to people, we'll change the incentives for investment in the economy if you agree uh, to this 0.5% levy. So you're going to keep your tax-free gains on capital gains. But of course, by having a 0.5% tax, you're changing the incentives for investing in land. And particularly if you used a higher multiple of that tax for unoccupied land, either land that doesn't have homes on it, but is still residential zoned, and particularly those that are residentially serviced. And of course, um, homes that are left empty all through the year, uh, you could encourage them to be 
filled up by having a higher rate for that residential land levy. Currently, residential land is worth about a billion dollars, sorry, one trillion dollars. So that means uh, that's about five billion dollars a year in extra revenue. Now, if you were able successfully over 30 years or so to reduce the costs, remember that $7.1 billion cost to the government of having an, a broken housing market, then uh, you essentially uh, can use that money as well as the $5 billion a year to uh, um, take on long-term debt, 30-year debt to uh, build up over 30 years to pay for all of this infrastructure. Because remember, if you have $7 billion worth of uh, savings, you could use that to fund upwards of $150 billion of debt. Obviously not tomorrow, you'd do it over the long run. Um, another way in which you could pull together a deal is to say, um, well, we, we will move to a similar tax treatment of pension savings that the rest of the world has. So in the rest of the world, um, people are incentivized to put money aside for their pensions. And that can mean um, they get some sort of um, tax benefit at the start when they're putting their money into the fund. So for example, the income that you use to put into the fund may be tax-free. That's the case in Australia. And also, you could choose to not tax the earnings of that fund uh, while it's um, locked up for the pension. And that's the case in some other countries. And then finally, you could choose not to tax the money that's coming out of the fund when you withdraw it um, to help pay for your retirement. And um, this process of taxing or giving a tax break on the way in or giving a tax break on inside it or giving a tax break at the end of the process is quite conventional in the rest of the world. They often do it in one or two of those three steps. In New Zealand, in the late 80s, we chose to remove the incentive at the start of the process. So none of these um, incentives to rich people to build up their pensions even more. It's one of the big complaints about the Australian scheme is that the benefits of that go to those people who are saving the most of their income, which tends to be those people on higher incomes. Um, so uh, what you could do is say to um, people who are reluctant to accept a, a new residential land uh, levy, you could say, okay, uh, how about we uh, remove the taxation of money that's in KiwiSaver funds, which encourages you to put more money into those funds, means there is more money left in the funds to invest in businesses, and uh, would immediately provide a shot in the arm to investment in businesses. And many of those funds would actually buy the bonds that the government's selling to borrow for this infrastructure. So that's one way to have a much more conventional um, tax treatment of investments in New Zealand. Currently, there is a massive um, tax incentive to put your, your spare money as a household into leveraged residential land because it's not taxed. Uh, whereas if you at least tax it a little bit every year, then you are sending a signal that um, there won't be the same leverage tax-free gains or not the same extent. By putting in place effectively a tax break inside the funds for KiwiSaver and other pension funds that are locked up until your retirement, you're essentially sending another signal, which is invest in infrastructure and real businesses rather than residential land and have more of a more normal economy and investment market like you see in Australia and the United States. 
So um, that's another way you could create a deal that effectively changes completely the incentives that we have in our economy to put all spare money into residential land rather than businesses. It also says to businesses who are looking to invest in, uh, in their own infrastructure and training and staffing that there is a pathway for development because as part of this Affordable Housing and Climate Act, I'm proposing that um, an independent government authority be tasked with achieving some targets around affordable housing and climate change. I'd propose that by 2050 this uh, act um, compel an authority uh, with, with a CEO, a Reserve Bank style authority with a Reserve Bank style CEO with some specific targets, a bit like our inflation uh, targets that we have at the moment, the 1% to 3%. And you say to people, right, we need to improve housing affordability so that our kids don't leave the country and so that we don't have lots of sick people people, stressed people, kids bouncing from school to school, we need affordable housing and not just affordable to buy, affordable to rent. So what you say is, okay, let's target a number. And what is the number? I'd suggest that the number should be 40% of disposable income. No one paying more than 40% of disposable income for their housing and their transport. So currently, um, uh, this is measured by quintile, and our lowest quintile, the poorest 20% of income earners, currently have the highest uh, uh, share of their income in the world used to pay the rent and for transport, because they all have to buy uh, dunga cars that um, keep breaking down, are costly to insure, uh, often uh, paid for with borrowed money at high interest rates and um, pump out enormous amounts of emissions. Uh, uh, we've all seen them. Uh, they are the, uh, the RAV4s and the Isuzu Bighorns and the, um, all the other types of cars that people buy, uh, secondhand used imports. And they're expensive. Um, they clog up the roads. They churn out emissions. Uh, they're dangerous. And... Um, if we're going to have any success in reducing emissions, we have to change that. Uh, and that involves um, ensuring that people have a warm, dry uh, home that doesn't cost a lot to heat, doesn't cost a lot to rent, and uh, can be used in conjunction with uh, uh, work and uh, and play and education that is walkable or busable or uh, cyclable. And I'm not just talking regular bikes, but... Uh, electric-powered bikes and buggies and scooters and all of that sort of thing. So um, by changing the incentives and by agreeing a pathway and some targets for an independent authority, you're essentially saying to people who normally say no, hey, if you agree to this and this authority, which remember is independent, so it can't be pushed around uh, whenever there's a change of government because it's a bipartisan act of parliament, but like the Reserve Bank Act or the Public Finance Act or the State Sector Act or the Resource Management Act uh, or even the, the Zero Carbon Act. If that is a bipartisan agreement, we have a clear pathway and an agreement across society to achieve these things, which seem reasonable to me. Uh, no more than 30% uh, cost for uh, housing as a share of disposable income and no more than 10% for transport. And when you have a lot more uh, buses and roads and cycleways, you reduce that cost dramatically. 
So 40%, no more than 40% for housing and transport for any family, particularly the poorest. And if you lower it for the poorest, then you lower it for everyone. That means that employers suddenly will have a whole bunch of local people who have the time and the money to train and to stay in New Zealand. You also have a bunch of places like Wellington uh, in particular, but also Auckland, Queenstown, where a lot of businesses are restricted in their growth because they can't find people to do, to do that. Now, the one thing that's missing from this Affordable Housing and uh, um, Climate Act is uh, an assumption and an agreed assumption about how fast you want your population to grow. And that means you have to, um, uh, because there's no point in um, planning all this unless you know how big your population and what infrastructure you're going to have in 20, 30 years' time is. So um, I'm proposing also, and if you're a regular listener, you will have heard this, the idea that um, this Affordable Housing and Climate Act also include a population growth limit assumption of 1.5 to 2%. Now, why is 1.5 to 2% per annum important? Well, that's actually what our growth rate's been for the last 20 years. And the problem, of course, is that we assumed it would be 0 to 0.5%, not 15 to 2%. And remember, when you grow your population 15 to 2% decade upon decade, if we were to do that decade upon decade on average, by 2100, there would be 17 to 20 million people in New Zealand. And you have to ask questions then about you know, what sort of public transport or educational health system should you be building now that's going to be around in 2100, when, for example, there might be 10 million people living in the Golden Triangle of Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga, or uh, two or three million people living in the Lower North Island, particularly around the likes of Palmerston North uh, and Foxton. <laughs> so th these are the sorts of um, uh, things you could do in an Affordable Housing and Climate Act. And as the payoff, you say to people, agree to this, we hit our targets for affordable housing and uh, climate, and... In return, we'll give you tax cuts. And those tax cuts are in the form of uh, leaving in place the tax-free gains on, on capital gains, uh, providing an incentive for pensions, and you could look at and or uh, reducing income tax and GST rates or, for example, uh, making uh, the income tax thresholds um, indexed to wage growth, which they aren't at the moment. So um, that's an idea for a new deal, a... Um, uh, an Affordable Housing and Climate Act, um, which provides things for both sides to agree a plan over 20 or 30 years to make housing and transport affordable in a zero-carbon way that supercharges the growth of our society, not just in economic terms, but in well-being terms. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my dawn course for Friday the 29th of December. Slightly longer than normal, but something to listen to over the summer break while it's raining, because it always seems to be raining when we're on holiday. Kaki te anō.